Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by Ron Shelton, who is the writer-director of Bull Durham um, and the author of the new book, The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. Uh, his body of work includes White Men Can't Jump, Tin Cup, Cobb, Dark Blue. Uh, fun fact, I became intimately acquainted with, uh, acquainted with Tin Cup during the summer I spent working on a, a golf pro shop at a small country club in Virginia where it played on a loop on VHS. I mean, literally would just stop it, rewind, go back and, and watch it over again. Uh, which was fun. I, I made my made my summer much easier. Um, so thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it, Mr. Shelton. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, so let us talk a little bit about Bull Durham. I mean, I I want to I want to set the stage for people because I I don't know that everyone knows this. I mean, you are a former minor league baseball player yourself. When you were sitting down to write Bull Durham, you know, uh, this is this comes a few years after Jim Booten's uh, Ball Four comes out. You know, people in the clubhouse weren't terribly thrilled by it. When you sit down to write this movie, are you are you worried about? Uh, how the response might be from former ball players, or are you are you just trying to humanize them like uh, Jim Jim uh, Booten's book did? I, I, well, I was trying to humanize them, of course, because they're us. I mean, they just instead of working, you know, at a factory, they're playing baseball for a living and trying to, you know, move up the ladder. Um, they're, they're a bunch of ordinary guys who are in extraordinary circumstances, and that's one reason I like them. Um, I didn't think. Uh, I, I didn't understand why Dalton's book was so unpopular. I thought it, it really humanized everybody, including Mickey Mantle, to be honest. And I became friends with Jim Dalton later. And I think Jim Dalton's book made Bull Durham possible. Um, you know, we uh, this idea of these hagiographies of our of our sports heroes and political heroes being sort of Marvel Comics, DC Comics superheroes is absurd. And um, I just was, plus I think it's a funny world also, and a touching world because guys like me thought their dreams were over and I thought I was done at the age of 25. You think you're 80. Um, and now in my, I'm in my mid-70s. I don't think I've done it all. So <laughs> things yeah. change. Now, I thought players would like Bull Durham and they did. Yeah. Well, you there you you mentioned at the end of the book you did get some some nice feedback uh from one of your one of your former teammates I think it was uh, who left you a yeah. nice little voicemail. That was Yeah. It's always good to good to hear. So let's all right, let let's talk about um uh writing the movie because there's this there's this great little vignette kind of as you as you open the section on writing the movie where you are essentially dictating Annie's opening speech. Is that is that kind of how you Frequently, right? Is that a is that a normal uh, way for you to get going, get to get words before they get to the page, or was that unusual? Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll work off a dictaphone just to hear the characters talk. I really need to hear them talk before I can do anything, um, because each character has to have their own voice. And you'll see a lot of scripts, and even see a lot of movies where the dialogue is kind of interchangeable. Anybody could have said anything, and. Mm -hmm. That's not good writing, it's not good drama, and it's not true to real life. You know, you and I have different expressions, my wife and I, my kids and I, my friends and I. You, if you read a transcript, you know who's talking. Well, mm -hmm. in the script, in the script, it should be the same. So I needed to hear her talk, and I dictated what turned out to be the 
famous opening monologue, not knowing where it was going to lead me, and it led me to the whole script. Yeah, I mean, I the 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 way that you described kind of putting the the story together here is very interesting to me because you know I know I I talk to I talk to a lot of screenwriters for this show for for other stuff and you know a lot of them talk about working from an outline right we we got to get from point A to point B and your process here is very different. I don't like the outline, but I like to know the broad strokes of where I'm going. Um, in other words, I'm not entirely writing in the dark, but I also don't want to know how I'm going to get from point A to point B because that's the discovery. While you're writing a scene, you discover things that lead you to surprising new scenes where if it's outlined, it all feels very much, here's the dots, now go connect them. It feels like you know mm-hmm. a, a, you, a, 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 some kind of AI robot could, could lay out a plan and connect the dots, but... Uh, I want to be surprised. I want characters to say things I don't know what they're going to say. And when I'm typing and writing along and I'm on a roll, the characters are surprising me. I'm not talking to them. They're talking to me. So that's the goal of a writer to get in that zone. And yeah. when you can't get it, when you can't get in that zone, you got to, you got to wrestle it to the ground. So it looks like you're in that zone. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. I, I, I remember you uh, writing uh, about how many pages you throw away when you're when you're writing because that that is fascinating to me i mean i um, it's certainly not how i work uh i i you know it, it is almost daunting to think about writing that much and 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 just starting over again um how how did that process work here i mean would you would you uh you know bang out a scene and just be like all right we need to go in a totally different direction with it or or what were you what were you looking at Often, exactly that. You write a scene and you say, it's just not, there's not the energy, there's not the conflict. All scenes need conflict. All scenes. Of comedy, tragedy, whatever. They need conflict. Uh, I want something, there's a force of opposition keeping me from getting that thing. And you watch a movie or read a screenplay where it's just very professionally done, but there's no conflict, there's no life, there's no energy. All drama is based on conflict. I don't care what the, what the genre, the tone. So you want to make sure you always got conflict. What does he want? What does she want? Why is there a problem? And even even funny scenes. In fact, especially funny scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, so yeah, I look at this is one draft. The script, the movie is the first draft with changes in rehearsal. But what nobody sees is all the things I threw out getting to the first draft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, it feels again reading it, it feels like you're you know essentially doing five drafts at once, getting getting that whole thing out onto the page. Is this uh, the, the the section of the book where you're where you're essentially going beat by beat uh, through the story and talking about how you you wrote it? Is this what it is like to be in a uh, in a um, classroom situation sort of thing with you? Because you you mentioned a little bit about doing workshops and writers workshops and that sort of thing. Is that a, is this like a good crash course if you're looking to Figure out how to write a screenplay, you know, what what to do. Uh, look, I don't think there's one way to do it. This is the way I do it, or at least I did it on that movie and a couple others. Um, I, I don't think I have the way. I just have my way. And I know other people can't do it unless everything's outlined with an inch of its life. And the more I outline, the more deadly the writing is for me. Um, so, you know, I would never say this is the way to do it. What I will say, if somebody is a writer, is do you have the conflicts built in? And do we know what the characters want 
early on because you can't wait to page 40 to figure out why we're following these people. You know, I mean, Shakespeare mm -hmm. was great at that. Somebody would walk out on stage and say, okay, there's two families. <laughs> they hate each other, except the teenage boy and girl love each other. You know, and you got Romeo and Juliet set up. All of his plays are like that. You know where you are at the very top of the show, and then he can take you on a place you didn't know you were going to go. And the screenplay used to have more time to set that up, but now because everybody's ADD and, you know, instant everything uh, and impatient audiences, I tend to declare the want, the need, and the conflict way sooner than I used to. And then I spent the whole first mm -hmm. act mm -hmm. in Bull Durham, the whole first act is five hours, basically. It goes or six hours. It goes from Annie putting on her makeup, going to the ballpark, and it ends that night. So presumably it's like seven o'clock till midnight. And she's got Crash Davis and, and Nucleus sitting on her couch, and she's picking one. Uh, and that's it's 30 pages. And it all takes place in five hours, and we get the setup. Oops, she's with the wrong one. <laughs> and it was her choice. So um, that's, I mean, that's a pretty nifty setup. I wish I could always have such a good setup. So you have three characters you want to follow. They have completely different voices. And now they're involved in a menage a trois. And the two people who belong together can't figure out how to get out of their own way. Because all of us can't all get on our own way in relationships or want to change jobs or want to whatever, you know, it's usually us that is preventing us from doing yeah. what we want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, the, the, I, lo I love the setup of this movie just because it is, as you say, it's, it is people trying to get out of their own way. It is a very human um, drama. Well, we'll I, I want to talk a little bit more about human drama uh, towards the end here because there's a, a great line from one of the uh, you, you you say about one of your producers who wanted to make you know human films, not theme park rides. But we'll uh, we'll get to that. Uh, I the other thing that you you mentioned early in the book is uh, you you don't want to have too much sports in your sports movies. You don't want to have too much sports in your sports movies. But at the same time, you need actors who look like they can play sports. And I love the little story that you have about Kevin Costner basically wanting to uh try out essentially show that he can play baseball it almost felt like he was showing off a little bit for you well kevin you know i handed him the script and it was lucky for a first time director to get to somebody like that he wasn't yet a star but he was about to be and you knew it and he said i said and he loved the script and he said look at I, I i said it's your part if you want it and i wanted him to have it he said he had to try out because I played professional. He just played in high school. We went to a batting cage. It's all in the book. And uh, we're playing catch on the parking lot. Nobody even recognized him. You know, a few months later, everybody would have stopped. And we put quarters in the machine. He hit right-handed, hit left-handed. Now, was he showing off? Maybe a little, but athletes do that. Athletes are allowed to show off. That's what all of us show off when we can. But I really think he's, he's very respectful of me and the fact that I made my living doing this. And he didn't want to get two weeks in and me just go, I, you don't, I don't believe you as a catcher. I don't believe you as a hitter. I mean, Kevin's very good yeah. like that. Yeah. And um, so I believe maybe there's some showing off, but he really did want to pass the test for his own comfort. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it is interesting to think about Kevin Costner, who is, has kind of become... <laughs> 
uh, through the course of his career, the great uh portrayer of athletes that uh, i i am hard pressed to think of another actor who is an actual actor as opposed to an athlete who later becomes an actor uh who actually embodies you know the physicality of of an athlete uh, yeah he's 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 on the list of one you know i mean kurt russell uh, played minor league baseball and uh, uh was an early idea for this but he was unavailable but uh kevin could play basketball he could play golf as we can see he's a very good natural athlete and you just don't find that in hollywood you, you got actors who think they're athletes but they're not and uh and you have athletes who think they're actors but they're not but uh he's very rare and for me we work together very easily um on two different movies he he's highly professional he's very prepared he respects professional athletes a great deal he knows how hard it is to make your living doing that and um, so, yeah, I, I don't know how this movie works with any other actor, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, with a book like this, you know, with a, when I'm reading a book like this and I'm jotting down notes of questions I want to ask, I always run the risk of essentially asking you to tell me all of the good stories from the book and thus, <laughs> thus spoiling the book for people to read. However, uh, there are so many good stories in here that it, I, I, we could not possibly get through all of them. So I just want to ask, I just want to ask a couple of, uh, ask you to relate a couple of these specific stories to help people get a sense of the book. And the first of them uh, has to do with uh, the, the worst audition that you had in the process. Uh, what was the deal with Anthony Michael Hall? <laughs> I don't know. He never had he called me to apologize or sent me a note. I wouldn't probably have written about this, but I still like studio wanted him. We hadn't cast Nuke yet. He was he'd become much like six foot at and he was athletic since we remember him from the John Hughes movies. He was growing up and I thought that's a version of Nuke. Uh, you know, I hadn't met Tim yet. That's a version of Nuke. That's that might work. And he was, they thought he had a hot movie in the can and uh, Johnny be good. And so I, the producer and I flew to New York. He had the script for a week and we set up a meeting. I described this all in the book and we go to meet with him at six o'clock. He brings along a posse of six or eight people. I couldn't believe it. And, and I said, what did you think of the script? And he said, oh, I haven't, haven't read it yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and can you imagine two guys flying across country? So, I was pissed, and I said, well, we'll be back here at 6 o'clock tomorrow and read it, and don't bring your posse with you. And I left, and the other, and the producer, Mark Berg, stayed to kind of calm him down and say, just read it. You'll love it. It's great. The part is yours. If you so I came back the next day at 6, Mark and I, and he was there with half the posse this time. And we start the small talk, and I said, no, let's just talk about what did you think of the script? What did you think of the part? He says, well, I'm up to page 30. And once he said he was up to page 30, I said goodbye. I walked away, and Mark's, Mark stayed to coach him on, you know, professional behavior in the future. Uh, I mean, he's gone on. He made 100 movies and TV shows. He's done fine. Sure, but sure. I went back to the hotel, and I called the producers, the casting director, the agents, and said, I don't want to meet this guy anymore. And that yeah. was that was the Anthony Michael Hallster. Except there was yeah. an executive who kept trying to fire Tim Robbins and put Anthony Michael all in halfway through the movie. So it's one of the many battles that the book is about. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, the there's kind of a, a, a funny running motif in your in your book about the uh, the 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 appropriate level of professional lying, the amount the amount of kind of professional courtesy lying that you can get away with uh, in in a situation like this. I mean, when you're sitting down with a when you're sitting down with an actor, or when an actor is sitting down with a with a with a writer or a director, how could how can they just say, ah, I haven't read it yet? I don't I don't. It's crazy to me. I just look at 35 years later, I've just wrote about it. That's how crazy <laughs> it still is to me. Oh, it's good times. All right, let's talk about a much better audition process. Uh, Susan Sarandon, uh, who is wonderful in this movie as Annie, she is one, you know, the the absolute kind of intellectual and emotional heart of the film almost. Um, what was her what was her process like? Because you you know, you talk you talk in the book about her not being on, you know, the the studio's list, uh, and yet she still winds up with the part. How did that come to be? Well, the, the, the list, which I talk a lot about, each studio has this list of, of who's approved and who's not approved. And the problem is it keeps changing. I mean, week to week it will change. And she wasn't on the list. And I didn't know why, because she seemed good. And she seemed like a great idea. And I kept having to lie to her agent saying, I don't think she's right for it. Well, I did think she was right for it. A lot of women were right for this part. But uh, I couldn't. I didn't want her to fly from Italy where she was leaving with her baby not, not being on the list. Well, she insisted on anyway. She says, I'm coming. You're going to have to see me regardless because I don't, you know, if I fly that far. <laughs> so I said, okay. And I had Kevin there and she came in. She was fabulous, but she still wasn't on the list. This is a story in the book. It's pretty amazing. And we sat around going, wow, she was great. But what are we going to do? She's not approved. And about an hour later, the head of the studio called to say, uh, she's on the list now. Uh, I saw her a couple of weeks ago. Well, we knew he didn't see her a couple of weeks ago because she was in Italy a couple of weeks ago. So what happened was that she went from the meeting on the studio lot straight to the studio that <laughs> was making the movie, and she worked her way up and down the hallways until she found met the right guys and saw the right guys, and she dazzled them. And she was in this red and white striped tube dress, and one thing I always loved about Susan is, you know, no more outspoken, empowered, liberated woman exists, but she knows the power of a red and white striped tube dress. And uh, uh, and I introduced her like that once, and she, she went, you're damn right I did. So, um, uh, you know, she wasn't ideological like that. Uh, anyway, that's how she got on the list, and she got the part immediately. Yeah, uh, it's a great story. Again, you you really got to pick up this book. Uh, I'm I'm gonna link to it in the email. But uh, Church of Baseball, the making of Bull Durham, home runs, uh, bad calls, crazy fights, big swings, and a hit. Make sure you go to Amazon and pick it up. All right, uh, just all right. One last story. Uh, one one last story. Uh, tell 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 the story of Kurt Russell almost getting this part. I don't want to spoil it for people. What? How did Kurt Russell almost get his way onto the set? Well, I um, the background is that the first person I thought of was Kurt because he played ball, and I knew Kurt from the best of times. And I think he's a really underrated, I think he's a great American actor. And I think now in his career, everybody realizes, wow, this guy's got a massive body of work. And I, um, we're having trouble two weeks into the show, three weeks into the show. I was fighting with everybody in the studio, not the cast, the crew, but studio. They wanted to fire Tim. They wanted to fire me. It was like, couldn't have been going worse. And I get a, 
on the set at 10 o'clock at night, they say, Mike Metavoy's on the phone. Now, Mike Metavoy was the head of the studio, and I knew they were having issues with the movie. And I take the call. Now, this is this has to be on a hard line up the middle somewhere because <laughs> there's no cell phones. Yeah. And I go, yeah. And he goes, we've been looking at the dailies, and we just, I'm sorry, we, we, he's not working. Crash Davis, Kevin Costner, it's not working at all. We're going to replace him. And, and put Kurt Russell into the lead role, and we're, he's going to be on a plane tomorrow, and we're going to reshoot everything you've done with Kevin Costner thus far. You've got to be kidding. You don't like Tim, and now you don't like Crash and Kevin? And then I start thinking. It's a long pause, and I say, Kurt, is that you? And he starts laughing. It was Kurt Russell. <laughs> um, and we still laugh about that. We still laugh about that. <laughs> That's a, it's a great story uh, to the extent that I had to read it twice because I was like, I, I couldn't I couldn't believe you. You end up working with Kurt Russell on Dark Blue. Right. I mean, that's a that that uh, what when you went, what was uh, what was it like? To, uh, this terrible question. But what was it like to work with uh, Kurt Russell, who I agree with you, is, I think, one of the great American actors. And I think is finally really people are kind of starting to come around to that. Uh, it was a joy. Kurt, again, Kurt was an athlete. And I get along with guys who are athletes because they have a preparation, a discipline. They're, they don't mind doing the same thing over and over. It's a very athletic thing, making the movie. And mm-hmm. we had a shorthand. Um, again, he was totally prepared. He cared about every line. He cared about He had smart questions. Uh, he gave you everything he had. It, it was effortless. It was a little bit like working with Kevin. Uh, uh, I mean, there's a lot of egos rage on movie sets, as you, if you've heard, but not with, yeah. not with Kurt, not with Kevin either. But Kurt, Dark Blue was about a tough, bad cop during the Rodney King, waiting for the jury to be out on the Rodney King riots and a terrible time in Los Angeles and, and good cops versus bad cops and the whole complicated mess of it. It's ongoing still. And he humanized a really bad guy and made us kind of understand well, this is where bad cops come from. They come from, yeah. you got a problem in your neighborhood? You want a, a nice cop or a tough cop? Well, in my neighborhood, I want a tough cop. Now, then when the problems go on, I want the nice cop to come back. Well, so you're asking cops to do it both ways. And they're not trained to do it both ways. They're yeah. trained to do it this way or that way. And I'm not defending bad cops. I'm just saying, it's a it's a tough job with multiple mandates, and somehow he took that character and made us care about him, and that's the most as a human being. Um, he's a really underrated, rather brilliant actor who can do anything in my mind. Yeah, uh, that movie is Dark Blue. There's a great uh, Blu-ray of it out from uh, I believe the uh, the the folks at. Um... Uh, I forget. I'll I'll link to that as well. But you should you should you should pick that up if you get a chance. Uh, back to Bull Durham, which also Bull Durham uh, on sale Criterion Collection half off uh, for July at Barnes and Noble. If you if you're a Barnes and Noble shopper, go pick it up. Um, again, fifty percent off. Uh, directed or I'm sorry, approved by the writer director Ron Shelton. There's a sticker on the front with your with your signature on it you you've signed off can i ask what that process was actually like uh working with the the folks at criterion did you just come in to you know kind of look at the color timing and all that how what what was that like yeah i, I approved the the retiming because the color blue is a little different in the criterion and i said well it's actually closer to the real blue 
Um, and Mike Schrego, the great critic and film writer, he did a Q&A with me about sports films, the history of sports films. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm going way back to the, you know, there was hundreds of silent, in the silent com- yeah. silent film days, sports was common. You know, Buster Keaton had a baseball team. <laughs> you know, and he yeah. carried crew, were all baseball players. So, um, a lot, Harold Lloyd did football movies. So, uh, we talked about that, and then um, there were some other specials and interviews. I don't know. I was unaware of all, how the detail that Criterion went through, but it was quite impressive. Yeah. Uh, it's a great set. Definitely pick it up uh, if you if you make your way over to Barnes & Noble um, for for the Criterion sale. Uh, you, you mentioned egos. Uh, and there, there's a line uh, towards the towards the beginning of your book that I just want to read here because I think it's worth uh, kind of setting the scene. Quote, the engine that drives Hollywood is the ego. The financier is determined to prove he is not just about money, but has a creative bent as well. End quote. How much of the conflict in getting uh, Bull Durham to the big screen had to do with massaging those egos and the kind of follow-up question to that is you know was this different now with a little bit of hindsight with you know having worked on more films was it different on bull Durham or was it just kind of the standard you know sort of big struggles between clashing personalities uh, well i've had a worse experience but i won't talk about it because the movie didn't come out very good but this was a this was battle because I just thought we were fighting fights that shouldn't be fought. That now I got this great cast and now they want to get rid of the cast. They said the movie wasn't funny halfway through shooting. They said it wasn't sexy and romantic. They said that they called me in Durham to say, trying to fire Tim again. They say, nobody will believe that Susan Sarandon will end up in bed with Tim Robbins. Well, guess what? I'm the godfather of their firstborn, okay? Uh, um, so they are they were married in real life. Just yeah, if, you after, if you don't yeah, know, yeah, I mean, yeah. after I mean after the movie, whatever. Right, right. And so they were wrong about everything. So why would why why are you fighting the fights that you're actually you're already winning? That should be on. And that's where the ego comes in. Everybody has to prove why they have their job. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I noticed this. You give a script, you be the greatest. If you gave Citizen Kane to a story editor now, he'd give you thirty pages of notes, <laughs> or you know, or a more pop movie, you know, a Lethal Weapon. The first mm-hmm. one was great, and funny, and popular, and smart, and you know, crowd pleaser, and plays in the malls. But you know, anybody they would they can't. So nobody can just say, "Oh, you're right, great, go with it." Everybody has to give you notes, and I've become smarter and more political about the massaging part of it. Um, I'm still considered somewhat difficult, which I don't understand because my, I make my movies, casts love me, crews love me. I work day and night. I'm tireless. There are no problems on the set. I, I solve them all on the set. So there's no fires come up. And I've worked with some of the biggest actors in the country and I have great relationships with them, supposedly some difficult people, not to me. Um, I use the athletic model, you know, Earl Weaver, mm-hmm. the screaming manager for Hall of Fame manager. Players loved him. They loved him. I talked to everybody in the Orioles. Yeah. That was my team. Yeah. And uh, be- why? Because they said he never, if he got angry, it was never personal. In other words, he would bark at you for something. He said, every player said, he barked at me for something 
I deserve to be barked for. The point was made, and it never was brought up again. That's good teaching, managing, coaching, yeah. direct, directing. And so, yeah, I'm not great at massaging. I've worked hard on it my whole career. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I've, I've made progress. Oh, I, 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 you know, it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to be confronted with bad notes. Uh, and you definitely got some you got some bad notes. I was fascinated by the the test screening stories from this book. I couldn't believe that this movie this movie didn't test well. And and test screenings are like a, a personal a, a fascination of mine. I had on uh, this show Kevin Getz, who had a who used to work at NRG, uh, has a book out called Audienceology, which is about kind of the making, uh, you know, the behind the scenes test screenings of all of, of all these movies. And I, 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 I watch Bull Durham and I'm like, that ah, perfect, perfect movie. I mean, I, you know, whatever, I could probably come up with some notes, but like, <laughs> I like perfect, perfect, perfect movie, entertaining, funny, uh, great date night movie, whatever. And it, just never quite popped with those audiences. Why was that? No, Kevin is the guy I called up to say when I was writing the book, can you, I, I just remember the bad test scores. Can you, you know, look them up? He, it was all in his computer. Mm-hmm. So all the test scores and the dates and the places of them came from Kevin, came mm-hmm. from the, so I'm not making that up. Those no, yeah, yeah. those were research. Um, I cannot, I, to this day, I can't figure out why it didn't score higher. Um, and what I learned is, is you know, I think it's an interesting observation, is that the more educated and literate the audience, the worse the scores are going to be. Because you give them a pen and a, a, and a pad and say, answer questions and be critical, they're going to show you how smart they are instead of just share how much they just enjoyed their experience. So mm-hmm. they got their sides of the brains are in conflict or something. Uh, I, give me a working class audience every time. Um, they laugh, they cry, they cheer, they boo. I know right where I, I stand. And, um, you know, so I, I don't know. It's a mystery to me. And here 35 years later, I mean, for 35 years, the movie is just sort of ascended in, in terms of how it's respected and beloved. Um, and now it's all these all these people's favorite movie. Where were they when when I was just, just screaming it? It would have made my life a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> Luckily, it all worked out. You know, people were were able to kind of uh, put put aside those scores and release the movie uh, in, I mean, the form you wanted, right? I mean, this is you 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 in a, I I don't I'm asking like you yeah. you 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 got more or less final cut here, right? Yeah, I, as I always make the argument that the, the audience has final cut. You know, if you really listen to the audience, that's that's where the movie has to be. Mm-hmm. You can't tell the audience, no, I'm going to give you 20 more minutes whether you like it or not. Because, <laughs> uh, but there's some directors that do that. Yeah. And well, you, have to, you have to not overcut it, too, because I can be ruthless. And sometimes, you're, yeah, let's put that scene back a little longer. It plays better. So you've, you've got to find the balance. And that's where other voices, the editor and other people will come in your editing room and say, Jill, Ryan, it's working. Just go to the next scene, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah. But... Uh, the test screening is a very, very frightening part of the process. I've only made one movie that tested through the roof. And uh, Why Me Can't Jump in the Black Theater of L.A. Okay. We got like 103%. It was like a, <laughs> it was like a Balkans election, you know. It was like people were, uh, Louisiana election was real long. Guys were voting twice, you know. Um, and, uh, but in the White Theater, two weeks later, it scored terrible. 
And the head, of the, the head of the marketing company said, don't worry. Once, if the black audiences embrace this movie, which they will, based on our test screening, white, white audiences will follow. And then when it opened in that theater that tested badly, it was through the roof again. So um, it's a, I mean, Tin Cup never got over 68%, which is not good. I mean, Bull Durham never got out of the 50s. And it opened, and Tin Cup opened number one in the country and was number one in the country for two weeks. Yeah. And again, the audiences, you sit there and the audience is enjoying it, they're laughing, they're cheering, whatever. And then, it, and then it's not reflected in the number. I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. It's interesting what you just said about white men can't jump. Uh, if, the, if the black audience is there, the white audience will follow. I mean, do you, did, you, did you get the sense that the white test audiences were... Um, nervous about enjoying it i mean because it can't it's it's a provocative film in its own way i mean it is not a it's not a you know uh i i could see people being you know concerned like oh am i am i allowed to like this i don't know i think so i think they were nervous until they were told it's okay to like it that it's actually supposed to be cathartic and funny and irreverent about things that were tiptoeing around i mean that movie you know i made two movies set in that time period that movie and dark blue <laughs> They're all made, you know, during yeah. the Rodney King trial and riots, bizarrely. Uh, yeah. Actually, this was shot just before the jury and the riots and all that. The jury came out with the acquittal. So um, uh, I, I think it was a relief to people to know that there's humor here. It's life-embracing. It's funny, you know. The white guy and the black guy got along with each other better than either one of them did with the women in their lives, <laughs> which says something about our nature, sadly, perhaps. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, so that was the only one that, that really scored. That's interesting. That's interesting. So, uh, you know, in, in your book, you talk about Bull Durham leading this uh, sort of renaissance amongst uh, minor league teams. You know, people would people would show up at the minor league ballparks again. Um, I'm curious to get your perspective on the minor leagues from three different eras. One, when you were a player. Um, two, kind of in the immediate aftermath of Bull Durham and, and you know, folks folks coming back. And three, how it is now. I mean, you, you still go to the you still go to the, the parks for retro screenings and that sort of thing. I'm sure you um, are, are still a fixture. I'm curious what you what you make of the minor leagues now as opposed to when you were a player or when the movie came out. Well, the, the ballparks and the lights are a hell of a lot better when I play. You know? <laughs> uh, I think the minor leagues are a really important part of the of American sort of social life and culture and fabric. I think small towns love them. Uh, you know, they were, television drove them out of business. And then I think television drove people back back to the ballpark after Bull Durham. And, and, and people started realizing that selling small town professional baseball of guys watching them maybe get to the big leagues or, or not um, was thrilling. There's no, nothing on television like that. Um, so I think it really has been thriving. And then the current Major League Baseball administration, which is just, I think, uh, a horror, Rob Manfred, uh, you know, they cut 40 teams in town because the owners are now think it's not worth the investment. Well, that's really sad because in such a tough, polarized, what's going to happen to our country next environment we're living in, nobody... Everybody went to the ballpark and doesn't care. Nobody cares who 
you're voting for. What this? Uh, I mean, I mean, Roe Wade. I'm against what just happened. I believe in the women's rights, but those arguments don't happen at the ballpark. Mm-hmm. And it's it, in a certain way, it's a sanctuary. And, um, you know, we'll have our arguments later. We'll fight over policies later. But let's go watch a ball game and have some hot dog and a beer. Mm-hmm. And and it's actually pretty thrilling because, you know, you sit much closer to the field. <laughs> it's more intimate. You can see the speed of the game. Big league parks are so gigantic. You know, it's just something happening way over there as opposed to, oh, I'm in the living room. Here. So I, I hope that. I hope that the trend turns around and we don't lose 40 more towns and teams. And uh, it was really interesting because you had a really somebody on the far right, like uh, the Louisiana guy that got shot, this uh, congressman, uh, what was his name? Anyway, there was far right and Bernie Sanders were all fighting for the to <laughs> keep the minor leagues. And I thought, mm-hmm. yeah, oh, that, see, that's the power of the thing. Yeah, as an ins- American institution. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I my my uh, boss uh, Jonathan V. Last. He uh, he listeners of the show will probably probably know him, but he uh, he he had season tickets to the minor leagues. Loved yeah. taking his kids. Would yeah. go all the time. Loved to see. It was a Nationals affiliate, so you know the the players would be playing in Prince William County, and then you know a couple months later in the majors, he'd be like, "Hey, we saw him right. way back then." It's a great time for yeah. for kids for families. Um, and get them young too. You gotta get you gotta get people interested in baseball when they're young. It's it's a harder sport, I think, to get into it when you get a little older. Yeah, and the young people I know because my son just graduated from high school as a baseball player. He rarely watches. It's all this. It's all the little thing in your hand. And he still knows more about what's going on. But hey, you want to watch a game? He'll eh, go to a game. Yeah. But we'd rather go to a college game in LA than Dodger Stadium because it's so hard to get to Dodger Stadium. And yeah. Um, I was just invited to the All-Star game next week. I don't know. It's too hard to get there. <laughs> Honestly. I mean, geez, I got to leave at 2 in the afternoon to get on. Yeah. And, uh, I always go to the minor league games if I'm in a town. I'm going from New York, pushing the book. Uh, the last week of uh, this month, and then I go to Durham for four days, and I'm really looking forward to that because, A, they love me in Durham, and B, I get to sit there and watch the Durham Bulls play in a triple-A stadium. Oh, that'll be fun. When when are you going to be in uh, Durham? We'll tell people, maybe if anybody's listening, they can show up. The 30th, July 30, 31, and August 1. I leave okay. the site. I'm there for three or four days. I'm doing some at the ballpark, signing at the bookstores, stuff like that. Great. Uh, well, if you're in Durham, make sure you, you head out to a, a Bulls game. Uh and pick up a copy of the book again, available on Amazon, Church of Baseball, uh, Barnes and Noble, local bookstores everywhere. Pick it up. I want to say uh, one one thing, Sonny. You know, it's you know my family back on my father's side is all Texas, <laughs> mm-hmm. West Texas, and they were dirt farmers. And people in California don't know what dirt farmers are. That means <laughs> where your land is so poor you can only grow dirt. Yeah. And they moved to Bakersfield area, which is basic to work in the oil fields, like in 1920. Mm-hmm. My father came out of the West Texas Bakersfield thing. And um, because Bakersfield is exactly like Texas, I've been to both. Mm. Um, but but they're all storytellers. You know, they could do nothing and tell a two-hour story about doing nothing that, that would just, you know, capture you. My dad would do that. 
I talk about that in the book. You know, he'd go to the grocery yeah. store for a quart of milk. He'd come home. It'd be a two-hour story, and it, you, you would listen to every word. It'd be great. <laughs> and then you'd realize he forgot the quart of milk. <laughs> uh, you you spent some time in Texas playing ball as well. And this, and this is, of course, is where I am based now. I'm in the Dallas-Fort uh, Worth Metroplex. Um, what, if you, what was your, what's your best memory of, of Dallas best or worst either way? I, what's, what's your, your favorite story from the time here? Well, I played for the Dallas Fort Worth Spurs in the Texas league. That was double A before about a year or two before it became the Texas Rangers. So they were building in, um, what, what's the town, the ball is probably six flags, Arlington, Arlington, right there. They were yep. building. So we're playing in a partially built. Major League Stadium. And what I remember is the heat. (laughs) (laughs) I just remember losing like 12 pounds a day of liquid. And then after the game, drinking a pitcher of iced tea and then having a couple of beers. I mean, just trying to stay hydrated. Um, But that was, and then, of course, also in the league was San Antonio, El Paso. Uh, Sure. You get this league. This league went from Albuquerque to Memphis. Shreveport, Little Rock, <laughs> Amarillo. I that mean, is a that is a heck of a summer right there <laughs> from from Memphis to to Albuquerque. Oof. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I I remember loving El Paso because you know it's across the river from Juarez before Juarez became such a dangerous town. And you'd go into Juarez after the game, you get a big meal, and your five dollars went a long ways in Juarez. So. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, in Amarillo, I remember being a, that was a tough place because uh, there was a slaughterhouse behind the left field wall and the, the wind blew in. I'm not joking. So not only Ooh. would you fly balls left not go out, you're smelling the slaughterhouse all the time. Ooh. And I felt really bad for all those guys that had to play, play in Amarillo. All year. <laughs> they, tended to, is... they tended to do very well and move up just to get out just just to get out either get up or up or gone yeah. one one of the one of the two yeah. um all right well you know that is uh boy that's just about everything i wanted to ask you know there one last thing i, I mentioned this a little earlier you you talk um early on about uh your your uh your your friend and and uh producer ed pressman um and and you talk about how he made movies about human behavior and not not lost leaders for theme parks um you know what is your what is your current sense of the the industry? Because I get I get I get responses both ways from folks who think that look we, the new streaming the world of streaming gives us more opportunities to make you know stuff for for niche adult audiences, and then I also hear from folks who are like they just don't want to make anything they don't want to make anything except you know the Marvel movies and the DC movies. Um, you what is your what is as somebody who's been working in the industry for forty some years now? I mean, what is your what's your kind of take on? on where where everything lies it's a mixed blessing i think really um i i wish it was easier to get movies made for theaters i understand why that's not a very good business model anymore and therefore i'm glad that streaming uh streaming is out there as an option streaming companies tend to be really driven by algorithms (laughs) uh Mm -hmm. as opposed to individuals saying let's take a chance on that one uh every movie that gets made check certain boxes in their, you know, AI department. So it's very corporate and inhuman. But as long as movies are getting made, uh, who cares? Because that story is being told. 
world is all it is. And stories yeah. reflect our times and life and culture and problems and celebrations. So um, I, I'm glad their streaming exists. Um, I'm, I'm sorry it's also corporate because, you know, people say, well, look at how many movies get made on the streaming. I said, yeah, how many are really good? I mean, honest to God, we keep forgetting. There's 500 shows on TV. Yeah, how many are good? Yeah. But it's better that there's 500 than there's 25. Yeah, it is. A, it's a it's an interesting time. It is a it's a very interesting time. And you at the at toward the end of the book, you mentioned that you're uh, working on a uh, Civil War picture or I guess just post Civil War. And that's a Western set post Civil War in, in Kansas called Wicked Kansas. And it's um, I, I grew up in Westerns. I talk in the book about Peckinpah and having a relation to his team and his movies and. Um, I've been trying to make a Western. It's written as a series. And, okay. and I'm with, I'm, my office here is with Frank Marshall, and, uh, who's a pretty, pretty good resume as a producer. And uh, He's done a few he's things. He's done a few things. And his wife, Kathleen Kennedy, I mean, between them. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're out trying to set that up right now, uh, find the right home for it. And uh, I would love to do that next, but I'll do whatever, whatever comes up first. Uh, let me, I, I, one last question, one last question, uh, and then I'll, uh, let you go. I, I, it's funny. I've been, I've been working through Kevin Costner's, uh, filmography for a different project. Uh, and I finally, for the first time saw Fandango, um, which, uh, I think is, is that a Frank Marshall? Did Frank Marshall produce no, Fandango? No, 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 was that, uh, that was, I mean, it was Amblin. It's, it was Amblin. It, it's mentioned yeah. in the book, Fandango. Yeah. I, when you uh, so you saw Fandango before you cast Kevin Costner, um, I presume, right? That, yeah. And and how, what was what was the what was your reaction to him like? Because I watched that movie and I'm like, oh my god, he's fully formed in his first. That this is Kevin Costner. I've never I've never seen anything like that before with a with an actor. I was taken by it. It was a little movie. Nobody saw it. I saw it, and then uh, um, I saw him in a big movie. He wasn't the lead. He was about the fourth lead Silverado sure. with, uh, and Silverado he plays a completely different kind of character he kind of plays the crazy mm-hmm. young cowboy yeah. and I thought this guy can do that and that he's got range he, Kevin doesn't get the, the recognition for the range he has because you know he's easy to pick on he's a big star he keeps reinventing himself but he's done tremendous range in his career so I think Fandango to Silverado Plus, they told me to play ball. I said, "This is my guy." <laughs> Silverado is an interesting one as well because, it, it, as you say, he he's almost the comic relief in that. He's almost the the goofy the goofy younger brother, um, which is very again different from Fandango, where he's a almost countercultural, you know, yeah. draft dodging. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just very it's very interesting to to go back and look at those early movies. I always like to end the show by asking if there's anything I should have asked, if there's anything you think folks should know about Bull Durham, about baseball, about life in general. Uh, what what should what should I have uh, asked that you think uh, folks should know about? I have zero life advice for anybody, Sonny. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, no, I look at the book. I think, why write about a movie you made 35 years ago? Well, I think the book answers that question. It's about more than the movie. It's about how to survive in a certain way, and how to yeah. how to stay focused, and and where how far will will power will carry you. 
and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Again, name of the book, uh, The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit by Mr. Ron Shelton. Uh, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it, Sonny, very much. Uh, we will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.